0: Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Roggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. Friday. And going forward, Benham Ben Talibu is my co-host on Fridays. Benham is a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. Benham, looking forward to discussing the mess that is the Middle East and the war on Israel and Gaza and the Houthis and Iran and all of the mess that is going on right now. Welcome to Generation Jihad, Benham. Thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure to be back with you. Looking forward again to today's conversation. Just great to have you. There's just so much going on, and it's just so difficult to try. You know, when we do these shows, where do we start? But I think the natural place to start today is with the Houthis and Operation Prosperity Guardian, which is with the, I believe there's eight or 10 countries that are involved in this that is supposed to be still not even sure what it's supposed to do to counter the Houthi threat somehow. Is it offensive? Is it defensive? Are they By offensive, I mean, are they going to target the uh, Houthi capabilities um, to strike at the shipping and, and um, that they're, they've been targeting over the last uh, month plus? Or is it going to be defensive and that would be escort and basically try and shoot down the, the Houthi capabilities, the, the cruise missiles and ballistic missiles and drones and um, occasional uh, helicopter raid and sea raid on ships that the Houthis have been launching at shipping? Um so you know a lot going on there. Prosperity Garden was announced Monday. Um, there's some reports out there that the French are very unhappy. France is one of the members of the coalition, and has begun escorting its own tankers and merc- mercantile vessels as they're uh, through the Bab el Strait. That's the strait that connects the Red Sea uh, with the uh, Gulf of Aden. And of course, that's the, um, that straight is the the path to the Suez canal. So right now, Operation uh, Prosperity Guardian doesn't look to be very prosperous or, or to be guarding very much at the moment if the French are walking out and escorting their own ships as the U.S. and other coalition members are seem to be figuring out what to do. Um, Benham, what are your your thoughts on this coalition, on what it's, uh, what it plans to do, what it's capable of doing and, and. You know, one of the things that was notable to me is who was not involved in in this coalition, and the Saudis being one of them, um, and there are other countries, Egypt and other countries as well. Uh, yeah, so let's share your thoughts with this on uh, on Operation Prosperity Guardian. Ben.
1: Well, uh, listen, it's a very interesting thing to unpack here because it's not the first time the U.S. or even an international coalition has been created to deal with an Iran or Iran-backed proxy maritime threat. There's a whole host of, as you know, uh, combined maritime forces, task forces, international maritime security constructs uh, operating in places like the Persian Gulf, Strait of Hormuz, uh, Red Sea, Bab Mendeb, mandeb and Indian Ocean, uh, uh, and and Gulf of Oman, too, I should say. This basic, you know, stretch around the Arabian Peninsula, touching these two very important straits, is home to a place where Iran first, uh, developed and refined a asymmetric maritime capability, which is the Persian Gulf and Shred of Hormuz, and then exported it with the Houthis literally on the opposite side of the Arabian Peninsula. And we saw, you know, fits and starts of this with the Houthis in 2016 and 2018 with light Red Sea attacks and reports of Iranian spy ships around there and uh, the ability of either side to in, engage in a blockade and Houthi fast attack craft. This is basically, this entire threat is brought to you by Iran having successfully exported its anti axis uh, uh, area denial capability from one area to another area. And, and this is something that people thought was premature in 2018 when we warned about it, but I think actually was quite precious then. So this is this is the architecture of the threat that these combined maritime task forces have long uh, been looking to uh, defend against. Uh, in some places, it's more about free flow of oil. In other places, it's more about counter-proliferation and arms smuggling. Here, what the Houthis have been doing since they came online uh, on October 19th, I think, for the first time firing uh, at Israel, is first try to strike at Israel proper. In the face of the interceptions of their ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and drones via F-35 and Arrow and everything else, uh, the Houthis have shifted to going after this low-hanging fruit in the hopes of the commercial crisis created by going after commercial shipping and international shipping Uh, as well as any kind of forces that would be protecting uh, this shipping, uh, would either reduce Red Sea trade, limit Red Sea trade with Israel, and in general, put economic pressure furthermore and political pressure furthermore on Israel to end the war in Gaza. So again, this is Iran using military means to achieve a political goal. And it is looking to de-escalate the war by escalating other crises. And Here, I think Combined Task Force 153, which already existed uh, in in the Red Sea, is going to be through the prism of the U.S. taking up the leadership position here for, I think, about eight members. Uh, I think the only regional member of substance uh, in this international coalition uh, is Bahrain, uh, which that is not an accident. Uh, That's where Navcent is, the fifth fleet in the Persian Gulf. So but it absolutely makes sense. But it's a real shortcoming because these uh, forces, these combined maritime and uh, international uh, forces there continue to replicate the problems of the past, even though they're doing a very helpful job for defense. You know, some could say this is zone defense or area denial, meaning they're denying the Houthis the ability to strike at these commercial vessels. These commercial vessels still don't feel 100% safe yet. You still have a lot of traffic uh, being routed around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa. You have insurance premiums, you know, uh, you know, skyrocketing uh, for the vessels that continue to operate in the Red Sea. So clearly, the markets don't seem to trust the capability uh, of these uh, of this international maritime uh, coalition to 100 percent defend against it, because all it takes is one attack, uh, you know, to especially one attack on on, on, a, on a tanker that could be carrying oil or something highly flammable uh, for a major disaster in a major international shipping artery. So uh, until these members do more, uh, and by do more, I mean respond rather than defend against, they're going to be really just beefing up an architecture uh, that already exists. And while this is commendable, and while this shows leadership, this is, again, more of the same. And more of the same is necessary moves by the administration, but not sufficient moves by the administration. And I think Iran and the Houthis know this, which is why precisely... Uh, they've
0: started barking up this tree to begin with. Yeah, you know, Benam, you said something that you said stuck out to me. You said Iran is using military means to achieve a political goal. I mean, is that not the definition of war? Iran is a, you know is showing that it's at war with us, and we're just not recognizing it. We're not addressing this problem.
1: Just, just on this because sometimes when I look at the Iran America proxy war uh, and all the iterations of Israel's conflict with uh, Iran's proxies in the neighborhood. I think of another Clausewitz quote, Um, and you know these two things go in different directions. Uh, One makes you go technocratic; one makes you go very political. The political one is the one we just said. The you know uh, war is politics by other means. That Iran is trying to achieve political ends here, Um, and even in the absence of those political ends, it's it's trying to create more cost. Right? It It has a political strategy for the region. Uh, unfortunately, I think the way the U.S. and the Israelis have been approaching, A, this Iran threat network, and B, the region, is another Klaus West line, which is that war, when war happens, his line is the ultimate purpose of war is to serve itself. When war happens, I feel like our war-making machines, the Israelis' war-making machines, tend to end up serving themselves, meaning there's a lot of tactical wins, but there's very few strategic wins. Uh, and that's kind of, unfortunately, been the moral of the story. No one doubts for a second uh, that even U.S. vessels prior to this coalition could intercept everything. I mean, look, the Israelis have intercepted every single thing uh, that came their way from the Houthis prior to the Houthis targeting international shipping. But still, that wasn't enough to get the Houthis to stop. So again, we ha- like we and the Israelis have great technical means, but these technical means tend to feed into this kind of a, like almost legalistic bureaucratic war making machine that don't end up necessarily furthering the political goal. Uh, and that tends to be because I think, you know, I'm, I'm not a, you know, a scholar of us and Israeli military history here. I tend to look at the adversary, but I think that is part of the problem that, uh, these military machines focus a little bit less on not just the threat and the capabilities, but the intentions and the strategies of the adversary that drive those capabilities. Uh, and instead look at the one-to-one kind of battlefield performances. Uh, everything is a battle damage assessment. Um, and, and in that sense, you get that very legalistic approach that Klaus was talking about. The purpose of war is to serve itself. The purpose of the coalition is, this, is to serve its own itself. If the, the coalition says, okay, we have to defend, well, as long as they're defending, the coalition is vindicated. Um, you and, you and were reading are reading my mind. Two very different worlds. And not to make a maritime analogy, but these are two ships passing
0: in the night. No, you're. It, it's exactly right. I mean, we, Israel is, a, in an undeclared war with us, but a war nonetheless, and against the U.S. against Israel. And, and Iran isn't an undeclared. I'm sorry, Iran. Yes, yeah. my my. Please, yeah. yes, Iran is in a war with the U.S. and Israel, of course. Um, however, we believe that if we choose not to recognize it, if we choose not to actually address it. That we're not at war, but we are. I mean, it's it. We don't get a choice here to say we're no. We're not. We're not at war here, and yeah, this is the mistake. And you're you're absolutely correct, madam. You this is this is why I you know I was like I, had, I was going to explain much of what you had said here, but I knew you could say it far better than I could. No, no. <laughs> are better than both of us. You <laughs> know we have really to <laughs> he sure he certainly did. If we have to create coalition after coalition to deal with this problem and that problem, we're treating these as discreet little the Houthis while well, they're threatening shipping. No, Iran is directing the Houthis to threaten shipping. This is the problem. But you know we can deal with these little symptoms or and and inefficiently deal with them in my opinion. You know you're right these coalitions just have a life of their own and it's not Result, it's not getting to the root cause of the problem because we don't want to get to the root cause of the problem. We, being the U.S. government um, and and its allies, just ultimately have a fear of addressing the Iranian problem uh, at the at the root. And until they do, they're going to have to. This won't be the last coalition that'll have to be formed.
1: Understood. No, that it's a lot of this is by choice. I, again, I'm not going to fault every policymaker for not wanting to. Uh, take the bull by the horns when the performance against uh, Cab has not been great, let alone like a bull. But the, what what you and I are trying to get at here is that there is a larger truth uh, behind this, and the absence of the recognition of that truth leads to this kind of dealing with the symptoms of the problem. And and you know what? I, I'm not a policymaker. I haven't served in the U.S. government, but at least I want to get our strategy of here's how to deal with the symptoms properly. Um, and I think that takes us into, uh, you know, a, a, an article um, that uh, a, a, an American think tanker, I think from the Carnegie Endowment, wrote in the Guardian, uh, which was basically a, a rebuttal to an op-ed that John Bolton had in the Washington Post. And I think both of these views kind of also represent the those two ships passing in the night, you know, to to make everything about dealing with the patron and forgetting that we don't have a good track record with the proxy, and then on the other hand, to make everything about seeing any move to even establish deterrence militarily uh, as being some kind of war hawking, warmongering move. I mean, both of these circles, both of these conversation clusters, they also, the purpose of them is to feed themselves. The purpose is to perpetuate the theory of the case that both these worldviews have. Uh, And somewhere in between, someone has to say, well, what is the adversary saying? What is the adversary doing? Maybe we should adjust our worldviews and our theories based on the relative performance of the past application of these theories and the success of the adversary in
0: the face of them. You know, Ben, um, you had mentioned, you know, given our poor performance dealing with proxies in the past, maybe that's an indication, maybe that's working as designed for the Iranians because we really aren't getting at the root cause of the problem dealing. We can't effectively deal with these proxies in my opinion until We, you know, until we actually get to the root that as long as Iran remains untouched. And listen, I want to say this as someone who's witnessed our poor performance in multiple wars, I am and and has very low confidence in in any administration's ability to prosecute a war against our enemy. I'm very careful about what is the next thing that we are going to get involved with. Um, I've almost become sort of an, you know, an isolationist in the sense that like we shouldn't start wars that we can't finish that we won't finish because we're bad at them because we don't have the um the will to see through what we've started we don't have the political will because we operate on time uh time frames or of election cycles right two years and four years when iran doesn't have such constraints on it but you know i think our poor performance in dealing with proxies because we don't even get to the root cause of the problem and i'm not even sure how how well our political leadership and our foreign policy class understands the problems either they understand it and they ignore it um or they don't understand it i'm not sure what's worse is the you know the being deceptive or being stupid but neither is good when it comes to having to deal with these problems and i think you know it's doing things like setting up coalition after co- maritime coalition after maritime coalition—that's a symptom of that. You don't you don't have to keep establishing these coalitions if you actually address the root cause of the problem, and that's what we seem we we refuse to do.
1: And and even just a footnote to that is in a world where there seems to be a bipartisan consensus towards not being at least politically willing or materially willing to, to, to deal with that root cause, which I can understand. Uh, I can disagree with, but I can understand. And in a world where, philosophically, that might lead someone to being a bit more isolationist, but practically, I think you and I would want that to not happen, uh, what is the, the newest uh, place in the Venn diagram for all of us to head to? And that is, at least in the short term, a more effective strategy with the proxy. And there it requires us to really unpack what this coalition is doing, which is in some ways amplifying already what existed, amplifying Task Force 153, amplifying the right to freedom of navigation. They're amplifying uh, the right to unmolested travel across the Red Sea and not letting Iran close the Bab Mendeb mandeb or impede traffic there like it has done historically in the Strait of Hormuz. But how did we get Houthi attacks to stop in the midst of all this in the past? And again, I'm reminded, I think, of the USS Mason when, even when the U.S. did respond very limitedly uh, against uh, the anti-ship cruise missiles that the Houthis fired, there was a significant drop-off in the period of time between the next time the Houthis tried to uh, engage in these capabilities as well as to target U.S. ships. So the lesson here is less can do more if you are willing to even do a little bit more, and uh, the little bit more that the U.S. and hopefully some of the coalition members need to sign up to is to respond to the point of origin for some of these Houthi attacks, to be willing to militarily disable an infrastructure uh, that is enabling these attacks, whether that is the facilities that house uh, these missiles, uh, the folks and the capabilities that launch them, uh, the political organizations and their headquarters that give the green light, as well as any other kind of technical capabilities that they may have. And I'm alluding to a very recent Wall Street Journal story that talked about this Iranian spy ship that we heard about maybe half a decade ago operating in this area, uh, assisting the Houthis with target selection. Uh, And until we're willing to get serious about these targets, which are the low-hanging fruit and which are the building blocks of a better strategy towards the proxy, we're going to be just building more coalitions for the sake of it and ignoring the root cause because we think it's too difficult.
0: Yeah, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out if it was me as well, hitting an, an actual Iranian target in Iran, hitting an IRGC target. And, you know, they're the ones that are directing this. Um, I realize people say that that may lead to an escalation. Let's find out. I mean, they're certainly targeting U.S. military bases in Iraq, but there's been we don't have an exact number. It's We know it's over 90 attacks against U.S. bases in both Iraq and Syria by, of course, Iranian-backed militias. The militias that were created and are funded and armed and trained by the Iranians. And we've had five responses. I can't even remember. It's been weeks since the last time the US launched a retaliatory strike um, as part of what it says is deterrence. But obviously, the deterrence is not working. So it's our policy, you know, we're just waiting really for an American soldier to be killed, American warship to be struck. For sailors to be dead, possible, you know, disabling or sinking of a of a warship, you know, what are going to be the consequences for that? I mean, particularly for a Biden administration that's entering, and I don't want to, you know, discuss politics here, Benham, but you know, getting into a, a the political season, these are very significant liabilities that he's leaving out, um, leaving, you know, that are hanging over his head. I want to quickly discuss um, Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates are not part of the uh this coalition which is surprising given that well i would say not surprising given the fecklessness of the u.s and supporting its allies in the region for the last several years um but uh, reuters has an interesting uh, article out on this um it's titled uh riyadh reluctant to derail iran detente over u.s red sea task force so again, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, they're not part of Operation Prosperity Guardian. And then I'm going to read a directly quote from there, from the article. It says, quote, the main reason for the absence appears to be a concern that participating would detract from a long-term strategic goal, extricating itself, that being Saudi Arabia, from a messy war in Yemen and a destructive feud with the Houthis' principal backer, Iran. So the Saudis have essentially gone from going full tilt against the the Houthis um, and with U.S. backing to the U.S. under the Biden administration, withdrawing its support for for um, for the Saudi and UAE operation and alienating the Saudis. And then we're supposed to be surprised that the Saudis and UAE aren't going to be part of this maritime coalition to go up against the Houthis. I mean, this is the, you know, I would, I would argue that, you know, you're, how you position yourself in your foreign policy decisions you know has an impact the saudis should be a major ally in this campaign it shares a border with yemen it's been at war with yemen um it has ports and airfields that we can use to potentially strike at um houthi targets and yet this administration has alienated them the saudis and and they're sitting out on this coalition
1: yeah, there's a, a much larger political story here, um, and it, it's not designed to make it political, but we got to go back to uh, really the, the later Obama period, uh, when a lot of those regional countries, uh, the Arab states and the Persian Gulf in particular, found out about the U.S.-Iran negotiations, uh, and in general, uh, what the JCPOA would end up yielding Iran, and the fact that this regional issue was totally off the table, and the prioritization of the nuclear issue over all else. Uh, really did mean that the regional countries were on their own. And then, you know, marry that, of course, with the U.S. rhetoric at the time about being willing to lead from behind. Uh, Regional countries took regional issues into their hand and tried to create regional solutions to regional problems. And what you had then was, I believe it was called Operation Decisive Storm, the start of the Saudi-led, largely Arab coalition uh, against the Houthis, which had taken over Sana'a, the capital of Yemen and an attempt to restore the Hadi government, which was ousted by the Houthis in Yemen, and the Houthis you know, flirted with and ultimately partnered and ultimately absorbed Saleh's army and arsenal, uh, former, former president Saleh of Yemen. And uh, the Iranians saw this, and ultimately, like they do everywhere, when they see there's an ability to support a local actor who has a local interest against fighting a, a major Iranian adversary, uh, they scaled up political support, material support. Uh, and... Politically, the U.S. was not there to, to stand a with its regional partner, who had it had literally told regional problems to regional solutions. Uh, and this is a natural derivative of that. If you don't like the way regional co- co- uh, countries conduct regional business, then that would require a more forceful U.S. force presence uh, and and more aggressive, at least U.S. table setting for what the regional balance or what the regional picture might look like. So, in the absence is when these sorts of things happen. Uh, and if you remember the politics of that period, uh, you know. The fact that you know the U.S. was you know cut from aerial refueling and then ISR and the politics of the Yemen war and no one is saying that the Saudis who uh, you know lacked some precision guided capabilities and when they did still didn't necessarily employ them properly uh, didn't cause a humanitarian issue in the way they were you know trying to you know snuff out empty targets in Yemen and accidentally leading to all of these civilian casualties as well. Plus, of course, the fact that Yemen was already the Arab world's poorest country, that the Houthis also were fighting quite dirty, very much like Hamas, by the way, and likely in the future, if there's a third Lebanon war, just like Hezbollah will fight as well. Important for the Western audience to know this: that this is not a disconnected strategy of being willing to hide behind your own population and use the tough local conditions against the foreign adversary. But in that world of the U.S. first being willing to flirt diplomatically with Iran, second Saying regional problems to regional solutions. Third, not standing with the regional country, uh, which is fighting a proxy of your adversary, by the way. Fourth, layering on all the political problems that came with the uh, Khashoggi dispute, as well as, of course, uh, how the Saudi issue became weaponized in the 2020 campaign. Uh, The current U.S. president, when he was campaigning, calling Saudi Arabia pariah, the politics of oil and the Russia sanctions and the oil price caps and the Russia GCC relations, all of these were brutally mismanaged. And then, you know, 2023, the Biden administration starts talking about trying to get a Saudi-Israel peace deal, uh, and that has to sound a little bit artificial when you have this, you know, uh, six to eight years of a uh, uh, disconnected U.S. foreign policy towards that country, and then you layer on on top, uh, of course, the fact that no U.S. president, neither Obama nor Trump nor Saudi did, no, neither Obama nor Trump nor Biden uh, did something in the eyes of the Saudis to sufficiently deter and push back on the Iranians. And even at the peak of the Trump period is when you had the attacks on the uh, the, the American drone and the attacks on the U.S. base and the attacks on the Saudi oil installations, all kinetically unresponded to. Uh, and so these countries do what they did normally, which is to hedge. The UAE was actually openly hedging since 2019. Uh, you know, at the time when the U.S. was talking about building an international maritime security construct in the Persian Gulf, the UAE was talking about an, an, a maritime security construct with the Iranians. The UAE actively, you know, we know they had proxy forces, uh, but actively wanted down official operations uh, in Yemen in 2019 as part of this rapprochement with the Iranians. The UAE at the peak of American max sanctions remained a major sanctions busting jurisdiction and continues to be to this day for either drone components or petrochemicals or any other way the Iranians illicitly make money or illicitly beef up the threats that they pose. Uh, you know, the the line that General Mattis said ages ago, which has unfortunately congealed in the mind of Washington, that uh, the UAE is little Sparta, and just because the adversary is Iran, and this is a tiny country with robust, you know, military capabilities, is so wrong. The norm of these countries is to hedge because of the nature of their geography. I'm not saying geography and demography is destiny, but you have to understand that this is the trend of countries that live on the front lines of major, you know, adversarial. Uh, predatory kind of countries. Uh, this, this is this is a reason this foreign policy behavior is replicated around the world, and there's a reason these countries uh, that constitute U.S. partners today are hedging more than ever before. So you bring all of that into the mix, and the fact that the Saudis, once they had this entire policy of trying to get the Americans to push back on the Iranians, had their own diplomatic normalization starting uh, actually, a process in September 2021 and in March 2023, it led through some kind of breakthrough brokered by China to restore diplomatic relations, which were restored ultimately in May. Uh, and even in the Sudan crisis, you saw how the Iranians and the Saudis were able to deconflict and get their diplomats out. Uh, and so the Saudis are keen on retaining a publicly, uh, vi- a publicly visible uh, disposition of not being overtly anti-Iran anymore because... A, they don't want to get hit from the Houthis anymore, who they themselves, uh, with some U.S. diplomatic support, were able to get a ceasefire extended several times, have not been hit directly uh, by the Houthis in a while, and don't want to have Iran activate its low-cost proxy against it. Uh, I mean, this is all you know—moves by Saudi Arabia that is trying to prevent an adversary from striking it, trying to keep a relationship with an ally, and also trying to stop a bunch of local wars around it, while it is trying to economically and politically. Uh, Modernize in a very robust way ahead of what they have for Vision 2030, and that is a very delicate balance that the Saudis are trying to strike. And conflict is not helpful to the uh, to the thing that the Saudis are trying to promote in the region. And, and in this sense, it's it's at a height of irony that they who are so susceptible uh, to any kind of uh, uh, conflict or any kind of uh, storm that the Iranians could create are now pressuring America to not respond against the Houthis to keep this cold peace, which is essentially placating an Iranian proxy. I mean, we are witnessing a revolution now where there could be a slight change in the Saudi disposition to move towards trying to pay to play, uh, trying to purchase security. You know, there was a story a few months ago about the Saudis floating an idea of investment in Iran. The Saudis are, are no fool. They understand this robust architecture of sanctions that even remains undivided on Iran. Uh, they're not going to go actively invest in Iran, but these kinds of stories uh, show a kind of hedging uh, and permit certain kind of Iranian arguments about, well, we can we don't have to dominate the Saudis. We can just have them voluntarily cow a little bit or voluntarily not move so aggressively towards Israel, not move so aggressively towards America. Keep them in this curious position, which causes political problems for America and Israel in the medium to long term and political problems that lead to embarrassments like, wait a second. You are just fighting the Houthis. The Houthis are firing at all these international ships. Wait a second. This is a threat to Red Sea shipping. You have a gigantic Red Sea coastline, and you're not going to be responding here. Uh, this is precise. Again, this is precisely the point of a political strategy. Uh, our adversaries have a political strategy. Uh, we are now. We have a largely military strategy for the region. What is the political strategy to stop this Saudi hedging? What is the political strategy to get Saudi Arabia to see this is in its own interest? That's where this is falling flat on its face.
0: Yeah, and I, I could not agree uh, more, Benham. I this is, you know, we just we're watching a masterful play by the Iranians. Um, they they take advantage of our inability to craft and execute a, a strategy across multiple administrations. And look I say this as no fan of the Saudis. Um when you publicly call and treat a country a pariah, don't be shocked when it acts like one. And and this is where the Biden administration it's it's it would be funny if it wasn't so serious where they're just shocked, shocked that the Saudis won't join into this coalition. Well, maybe you drove them to this point. Maybe you drove them to the point where it has to change its strategic calculus. Before we, um, we wrap up, and I want to get your view on the trends for 2024 and, and who's, you know, who's benefiting from this war, uh, I almost, almost forgot about this. The Wall Street Journal has a, a great article out there. Um, the title is Iranian spy ship helps Houthis direct attacks on Red Sea vessels. So the IRGC is uh, providing intelligence to to the Houthis um, to direct drones and missiles on 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 ships moving through the Bab el um, Isn't this the perfect target if you want to really practice deterrence? You know, yeah, you have an ir- about- go, ahead, go ahead. Yeah, you have an Iranian ship directing attacks on. Commercial shipping and U.S. warships. It's being manned by Iranians. Look, you don't have to strike this. You know, I I know I'm sitting here saying, you know, hit something in Iran that has IRGC. Hit it on the seas. That's the perfect place to do this. You want to target our ships? We'll target your ships. Look, if it was me and like I was to attack uh, to 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 send a message to the Iranians militarily, I would hit their navy. I would say, you know, you're attacking ships. Fine. You like your. If you like to have a navy, you know you could stop this now. And if not, we'll start targeting your navy. Um, but this is to me, this is like the perfect target. The fact that this ship is still operating, I'm not sure where. Whether it's in the Red Sea or in the the Gulf of Aden, I don't know. But it shouldn't be operating any longer. It's the perfect message. What do you think?
1: Yeah, um, this it's it's perplexing how handcuffed. Uh, multiple administrations have been on this ship. I remember when I first heard of this ship. Uh, I think more than half a decade ago. <laughs> right. uh, it's still I, operating, I, I, isn't this crazy? I, 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 even then, when it when it was you know, first reported, I was like, "No way!" I was like, "This has to be some like misinformation." Uh, there's no way that Washington would permit this thing to operate in plain sight. Uh, this would be at that time. This was the lowest of the low of the low hanging fruit even in a world where we hadn't gotten all the U.N. reporting about what the Houthis were doing Mm -hmm. and uh, the U.N. reporting about the clear missile connections. uh, Again, I, I, I am flabbergasted. I am one person who is not willing to yet run, given that track record, the social science experiment of striking in the Iranian territory, precisely because of the fact that all of these circles externally are yet to be squared. Let's not open that Pandora's box yet. Because I, I, know what this, I, I know what this UPS box looks like. You know, we don't need to go to mystery. We can go to reality right here. You pointed out something right here. Um, so, uh, talk about trend lines. If, if these things, these these, these voluntary bold punches, which we've seen across several administrations, literally towards this vessel uh, hold, uh, then you know, early twenty twenty four, you know, you'll see you know, the axis become a bit more emboldened. And while Israel may have more military wins in Gaza, uh, the politics of what come at may come after will arrest it potentially or limit the success of it. Uh, and in that world, Iran may achieve some of its stated aims of trying to delay another U.S. a uh, U.S. Israel Saudi Abraham Accords 2.0 um, uh, will delay a meaningful military response against its proxy in the north of Israel, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, which has also been again. It's it's a measure of volume, their escalation. Just because they're not going to hundreds of PGMs a day at Israel doesn't mean they're not a, a member of this war. They're firing these gigantic IRAMs at Israel. Um, Israel is just you know trying to establish deterrence on a daily basis. That picture is moving on a daily basis. Uh, you have, of course, the unrespondent to attacks in Iraq and Syria, uh, and then this situation uh, in the Red Sea with the Houthis. So if these trend lines hold, uh, if I if I was an Iranian security planner, I would see the axis being vindicated. This is this is really the first time they're bringing different elements online to bail each other out. Uh, they're testing this creation of multiple conflict spirals, but that that multiple conflict spirals is built on a strategy they've had for a very long time, which is um, you know responding in a different the cross domain escalation, responding in a different area at a different time. Uh, so that theory has been expanded. And I think 2024 is going to be you know, ripe for the continuous expansion of that as uh, the U.S., both due to these expanding factors and, of course, that important political factor, will be trying to get Israel to wrap up the war. And the politics of managing that relationship, plus the, the, the different geographic and demographic issues here as to how the Democratic Party looks at foreign policy, how the Democratic Party looks at the U.S.-Israel relationship, how both parties look at the nature of the U.S. force presence in the Middle East, how both sides uh, really have become a circle, the isolationist internationalist, you know, the two extremes of both sides touch each other for the Democratic-Republican. Um, now, we're going to see a lot more of this uh, moving forward. So um, I don't think the trend lines look particularly good from the policy and the politics side of how the U.S. and Israel are going to be managing this conflict. That doesn't mean that we won't continue to have great interception of Houthi and probably Iran proxy Uh, attack. uh It doesn't mean we're not going to have, you know, Israel continue to pummel Hamas. Uh, but it means that in the aftermath of those things, how are you going to translate those military moves into a political win? Um, that's where I think the, uh, there will be shortcomings, and that's where that domestic issue of the U.S. will kick in. Um, and that may end up being the ultimate release valve for us for our adversaries in the region. So keep your eyes peeled uh, on this.
0: Yeah, I, I concur. 2024, the, the trends are certainly in favor of Iran and its axis of resistance. It's going to take its lumps. I think it's the Iranians have designed it to do so. I think these these militias, these terror groups understand that, but they have a wider goal that they're set on achieving to, to defeat Israel, to drive the U.S. from the west and they'll sacrifice thousands of foot soldiers and even leaders of these groups in order to achieve that goal. And yeah, it's, it's it's not looking not looking very good from this perch. Unfortunately, a lot of this in my opinion rests on the US. It's the main driver. If Israel had its choice, it would pursue these groups. It would pursue, it doesn't have the capability to fight Iran, to fight Hezbollah to fight Hamas and the Houthis and potentially militias from Iraq and Syria that could come through via Lebanon or Syria all at the same time. The Israelis need the U.S. to back them to provide weapons and munitions and to provide the political support. The U.S. is the only actor at the United Nations that's willing to defend Israel. Without the United States, Israel is, is on an island. And with the election coming up, with the turmoil within the Democratic Party over supporting Israel, it's really interesting to see where this administration goes. You know, again, we try to stay out of politics here at Generation Jihad, but sometimes the politics does matter. It has a a real impact. Benham, thanks for joining us. Happy holidays to you and your families and a happy new year. We'll be able to get an episode in next week, hopefully. There's still a lot going on, and it's interesting to see where things with this coalition and where things with the war develop. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks again. We'll see you all again soon.